Well, good morning, everybody. So glad to have y'all back with us here at Stapleton Baptist Church on a Sunday morning. Um, hopefully, we've only got a couple more Sundays of this. So I'm uh, excited about having people back in this room with me here. I think it's going to be great. Uh, I'm going to have to ask y'all to bear with me this morning. I've got a new camera set up, so I'm still trying to figure out where to put my eyes. So if at any point this morning it looks like I'm not actually looking at you, it's because I don't know where I'm supposed to be looking. This is totally new for me. I've got me a whole tripod and everything. We're making camera updates, trying to make sure that when we finally do get back uh, to church with some degree of normalcy after this is all over, um, we're still providing options for folks who don't feel safe coming out and would rather stay at home. So um, trying to make that as easy as possible for them. So we're trying to make improvements in the meantime. So it'll be better when it's time to get back. As far as those of us that are studying the Bible on video this morning, we're going to turn uh, to Revelation chapter 19 and we're going to be in verses one or we're going to be in verses six through eight this morning talking about God's control and the fact that it's a good thing that God is in control. So I'll go ahead and leave the slide up on the screen so that you can have a chance to look up and see where we're going to be in our Bibles this morning and then I'll pray and we can get started. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to study the Bible together. Um, Lord, I pray that uh, you would bless this time of study we have, that you'd help us to understand you better, to, to just revel in the fact as Christians that we have a good God and a God who uh, loves us and, and takes care of us and is not going to abandon us and who we can take comfort in your omnipotence because you're omnipotent and good. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to talk about it being good that God is actually in control. Uh, and we're going to jump in and just go ahead and read some scripture and, and see what we can learn from it. So go ahead and get your Bible out. You should have had ample time to get to Revelation chapter 19, uh, verses 6 through 8 this morning. So we're just going to go ahead and jump into scripture. So you can see it right here on the screen. It says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Uh, so John is moving out of a section of scripture uh, that seems primarily judgmental, and he's moving into a passage that is going to be celebratory. Now, there are some parts of this celebratory passage that are going to involve judgment again, but for the next little bit, the tenor of this passage uh, is going to change. And the first thing that I want us to see as we look at this change is that God being in control is good because God is good. Now, you're going to say, Josh, that's, that's a little bit of a truism. Um, is God being in control? Of course it's good that God is in control. Well, let me ask yourself, or let me ask you a question. Does it comfort you anytime you've ever been in your life and you've said, well, God's in control. God is in control. Why does that comfort you? The reason that that comforts you is because God himself is good, and you know that. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it in, in that particular way, but the fact that God being in control comforts you is actually an appeal to his character, that because you know God is good, you know that him being in control is a good thing uh, for you. So let's, let's examine the scripture a little bit uh, and think a little bit about it. Um, look at verse 6. Now, this is John speaking, and he says, And I heard as it were. So, remember, in the book of Revelation, a lot of things are actually symbolic. Um, they are not meant to be taken literally. John is not saying that he heard 
many waters, that he heard mighty thunderings. What he says is he heard the voice of a great multitude, that you've got a crowd here. And John is saying that that crowd that he heard was so loud that it reminded him of waters. If you've ever been to uh, been somewhere that's got rapids or something like that, then you'll know that waters can be very loud. Um, we've had some rough thunderstorms here this week, so you might think of the thunder that you heard outside, that the thunder that you hear is loud. He's not saying he hears water and that he hears thunder. He's saying the sound of the crowd that he hears praising God is so loud that it reminds him of water and of thunder. And why are they being so loud? They're saying, Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, omnipotence, uh, it, that's a big 50, cents word, 50 cent word for the day. I'm actually a geek. I looked it up uh, on dictionary.com, you know, so it's not Merriam Webster. I'm looking at my computer screen right now because I'm about to read. Uh, the definition so so I can I can get it correct for you according to dictionary.com omnipotence is almighty or infinite in power as God so uh, dictionary.com goes to omnipotence and they say omnipotence is actually an attribute of God it's part of what makes God God that there are no limits on his power the secondary definition is having very great or unlimited authority or power. I took a little bit of umbrage with that definition because there are plenty of people who have very great authority and power, but that does not make them omnipotent. Uh, there are many people who have um, a high degree of autonomy. That does not make them omnipotent. I think uh, the best definition of omnipotence can be gained by not separating out, or rather by separating out that one word into its disparate parts. I mean, you've got omni, which is Latin for all, and potent, which we even know in English uh, is powerful, is effective. Um, that, so you got omni, which is all, and potent, powerful. So all powerful, that all power uh, belongs to God. Now, God being omnipotent in and of itself is not a reason to celebrate. God's omnipotence is only a cause for celebration if God is in fact good. And I want to draw your attention to this particular verse from Psalms. Look at Psalm 115.3. Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. So stop and think for just a second. What does it mean when someone can do whatever they please? Whether or not that's a good thing is totally and completely dependent upon their character. So if God is omnipotent, but God is capricious and cruel, then God being omnipotent is not a good thing. If God is omnipotent, but God is also lazy or disconnected from humanity, then that's also not a good thing. Because what is his power? Why is that any cause for celebration for us if God has all the power, but he doesn't want to use it? Um, you know, if God is omnipotent, but his character sets him against us, that's not a positive for us, and that's not necessarily a reason uh, for celebration. Uh, so what actually pleases God? We've got to ask these questions about his character. Uh, we know that God is good, that scripture is the, the witness of that, that God is good. So his omnipotence is actually worthy of celebration. It's comforting to you to hear the phrase, God is good, because you assume two things that scripture teaches about it. So it's, it's right for you to assume it. 
that it comforts you that God is in control because you know he's omnipotent, and it comforts you that God is in control because you know that he is good. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 9 says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That when Jesus came here to earth, God, eternal God, taken on flesh, adding humanity to his deity, Jesus was teaching us how to pray to his Father. And of all the ways Jesus could have described the omnipotent creator and ruler of all the universe, Jesus taught us to refer to him as our Father. That's the way God wants to be known. Now, I understand uh, that the word Father may carry some baggage for some of you. I get that. But God is not... <clears throat> A father in the sense maybe of the father that you experienced or didn't experience. God is the father in the sense that you should experience, that every human being should experience because any man who is leading his child as God would have him is going to be a reflection of the kind of care, love, and diligence that God has for us as his children. So God shows his character to us in that he wants to be addressed by us as father. Also in the book of Matthew, we want to look at chapter 10 verses 28 through 31. Look at Jesus telling us uh, not uh, why we shouldn't fear other people. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two spare a soul for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Look at what I put bold on the screen. This is the omnipotent creator God explaining how he feels about you, that you are one of the most valuable parts of his creation. And Jesus is using the lesser to greater form of argument here. Jesus is saying if the sparrows, which are not as important as us, in the eyes of God, okay? That, that's just what he says. I'm not, you know, I have nothing against sparrows. They're cute. They're wonderful. I like to hear them sing. But in the eyes of God, they are not as important in creation as people made in his image are. And Jesus says, even though those sparrows are not that important in relation to humans, not a single sparrow falls from the sky without God the Father knowing about it and being concerned about it. So if God the Father is concerned about sparrows, don't you think God is concerned about us? That not a sparrow falls from the sky without him knowing about it, but the very hair of our head, the very hairs on our heads are numbered. That God cares that much about us in that amount of detail. So that should tell you that this good God, that his omniscient or his omnipotence rather should be a comfort for us. And then finally in John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. Uh, Philip, one of his disciples, says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? I challenge you, if you want to know the character of God, you need to go and read your Bible and look at the character of Jesus. Because Jesus is, in fact, God. Jesus is the, the, the God of the universe himself taken on flesh and dwelling among us. If you want to see how God thinks, look at how Jesus thinks. If you want to see how God speaks, look at how Jesus speaks. If you want to see how God would act, look at how Jesus acted. If you want to see how God loves, look at how Jesus loved. If you want to see what God thinks about humanity, look at what Jesus thought about humanity. 
Look at the level of sacrifice that Jesus went to in order to save humanity, in order to save you. That that should tell you God's character and the fact that he could do something so magnificent as sacrifice his son in order to save us and pull us out of the depths of sin, death, and hell should say something about his power. If God was all-powerful but he wasn't good, that would be terrifying. If God was good but he wasn't all-powerful, that would be depressing. But God is good and he is all-powerful, so God being in control is a good reason for us to be comforted. God being in control is good because he is omniscient, and that omniscient God is good. So that's what I want us to see first. Second, I want us to see that God being in control is good because he won't abandon us. Now, isn't that good to know that out of everything uh, that we could possibly do, and y'all, I don't know about y'all, but I've done some stupid things, and I'm sure some of y'all have done some stupid things too. And if you're sitting there saying, I haven't done anything stupid, you're lying to yourself, which is in and of itself stupid. So uh, we've all done dumb things, and we've all done plenty of things that would justify God saying, you know what, I have just had it with them. I'm done. Um, the very hairs of their head I have numbered, but they're making me pull the hairs of my head out because they, they won't listen. All of us have, have justifiably, probably, if it was possible, driven God to that point, and yet he does not abandon us. So God being in control is good because he won't. Let's look at the next verse, Revelation 19.7. So this great multitude that is sounding like um, rushing waters or mighty thunders, they say next, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself uh, ready. Uh, so <clears throat> we need to talk a little bit about this, this metaphor here. Uh, we need to make a couple of observations. First, the event that this crowd is celebrating has now been laid bare. The, the crowd is celebrating the wedding feast, the marriage feast uh, of the Lamb. This is an event. This is a period in history, a specific moment. Uh, and the church is the bride. Uh, the, that is a metaphor that runs always through the New Testament that Jesus views the church as his bride. The church should view Jesus as her husband. Um, if you go look at Ephesians chapter 5, I actually did a wedding today. Today is Saturday. I'm filming this on Saturday, and then you're going to see it on Sunday morning. Filmed a wedding today in which I preached from Ephesians chapter 5 on how the husband is to reflect the way Christ loves the church, and the wife is to reflect the way the church submits to Jesus Christ and loves him in that way. That this is a metaphor that runs all the way through the New Testament and even back into the Old Testament. Uh, under Israel, that God continually referred to Israel uh, as as his as his bride, that he was a husband uh, to her. Uh, so this is this is the great wedding feast of the Lamb that Jesus is coming back to get his bride. Uh, modern conventions uh, lead us to misunderstand the the marriage uh, metaphor here in Scripture a little bit. Now. I don't want to down modern conventions, okay? There are plenty of things that the Bible says about marriage. You know what is not outlined about marriages in the Bible is the ceremony. The Bible doesn't ever make prescriptions about how a marriage is to take place. In fact, the very first marriage was literally just God bringing Eve to Adam and saying, hey, here you go, look, I made you a woman. And Adam starts singing. Uh, if that was the way marriages work today and the father of the bride just brought her to the groom and said, okay, now sing a song, marriages would not be nearly as fun as they are now because not many of us grooms can sing. Uh, but uh, the Bible doesn't prescribe what marriages look like, so it's differed throughout the years. Uh, during the biblical time period, it's almost the, the reverse 
of the way we experience it today. Uh, today, marriages, uh, weddings in particular, are meticulously planned down to the day, down to the hour, that we've got wedding directors that do things by the minute so that you know at exactly this time, this song is going to start playing, these people are going to walk down the aisle, these folks are going to sit in their chairs, um, the, these the, cer certain things are going to happen at certain times. Uh, in the, and the biggest thing that everybody waits on, that the, the highlight of the wedding, is I'm, you can see where I'm standing, if you're familiar with Stapleton Baptist Church right now, you can tell that I'm standing, uh, you may not see my pulpit, but I'm standing right behind it, my pulpit, you can probably hear me knocking on it, it's right here, which means I'm looking down the, uh, I'm looking down the aisle, I'd flip the camera around if I could, but it's dark back there, so I'm not going to do that, so um, I'm looking down the aisle, and Imagine in your mind there's two big double doors uh, back there, and whoever's playing the piano, the organ, you, you can imagine in your brain, you hear Canon in D. I'm not going to hum it because if I don't get a note from the piano, I'll hum crazy notes and it won't sound right. But you begin to hear can Pachelbel's Canon, and every, the mother of the bride looks back and sees you know, her baby girl, and then she stands up, and then everybody else stands up, and the husband starts weeping because his wife's coming in the back door, and the the, the bride's coming in and, you know, the train of her dress is just going down the aisle and everybody's snapping pictures unless they've been told not to because the, the coming of the bride, her walking down the aisle, that everybody's waiting on her, that is a modern convention. That in biblical periods, it wasn't the bride that everybody was waiting on. It was actually the groom. That the bride um, and the groom were legally married at the betrothal that... Faithfulness was then required on parts of both the bride and the groom. That the groom was not to go find himself another lady. The bride was not to go find herself another man. That they are uh, betrothed together. They are legally bound, but they are not yet married uh, in the sense that um, they are living in the same household and, and, and all the attendant things that go along with it. Um, so once the betrothal had taken place, the bride had a general time period um, given in which the groom would come and get her and bring him back to his house for the, the marriage feast. And during that time period, the groom was preparing his house for the wedding feast and the bride was preparing herself uh, to go back to the groom's house for the celebration. So that is the metaphor uh, that this crowd is celebrating in, in this particular passage right here. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. That it is time, the music is playing, the band's out in the street, the procession is coming, that the groom has come back, that the waiting is over, the bride is ready, she hadn't been caught off guard. The groom is coming down the street, she can hear the music, there's not a thing left for her to do. She's standing at the door saying, I'm ready for him to get here, I've been waiting on him all this time. The waiting is over. Now it's time for the party to begin. And there's even shades of that in, in modern weddings now. I'm not going to name any names, but uh, one of the guy that I got to do the, the wedding for today, it was so neat. He's going to kill me if he ever watches this, even though I'm not going to name him. I'm standing with him waiting for the wedding director to tell us to go down the aisle to, to start the ceremony. And this guy's normally just effusive, that he's got all this energy uh, about him. He's not shy at all. I have never seen him be nervous a day in his life. And he's the guy that's going to just kind of dive in and, and do the thing. And he's standing on the walkway with me, re getting ready to go down to begin the ceremony. And he looked like he was about to puke. He was, 
he was so nervous. And I looked at him, and I said, are you okay? And he's, mm-hmm, yeah, I'm good. I said, let me tell you something. When you're standing up there, I promise you, however nervous you are right now, as soon as your bride comes around that corner and you see her, you're not going to be nervous anymore because y'all are going to be the only two people out here. And you know what? It was true that as soon as he saw her, that was it. So when you think the biblical metaphor, think of everything. If the bride of Christ is the church, think of everything that the church has been through up to this point. Been through quite a bit, haven't we? Now, I'm not just talking about us. I'm not just talking about our persecuted brothers and sisters the world over right now. I'm talking about the church at all points throughout history. We've been through some stuff. Those are our people. That's our family. We've been through some stuff, and we are waiting eagerly for Jesus to come back and claim his church. And, man, we are beat up every single day in some way, shape, form, or fashion to varying degrees. There's always something. But the day we hear the, the music coming down the street that the groom has made his house ready and he is coming back to get his bride, guess what? Everybody else has got to move out of the way because it's time for the party to start. That's what this crowd is celebrating, that there's no more waiting. There's no more hanging around that all of this death and destruction and craziness that we have read about this entire book, it's over and it's time for us to go be with Jesus. So uh, we should be celebrating God being in control because think about this, uh, that we have been waiting around for a long time ever since Jesus told us, in my Father's house are many mansions. And that gets mis mistranslated uh, a lot, so, so much so that we think that Scripture is telling us when we get to heaven, there's an individual mansion built for, for each of us. This, this word literally just means rooms. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. See, this is wedding language. I'm going to prepare the house for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. It, it's kind of silly for the groom to go prepare his house for the bride and then never go pick up his bride to move into the house. This is Jesus saying, I've gone to prepare a place for you. So you know that if I go and prepare that place, I'm going to come back and get you. It is a guarantee that Jesus is not going to abandon us to this world and never come back and fulfill his promise of taking us to be with him. That why is God being in control a comfort for that? Well, think about this. If God wasn't in control, Jesus has promised that he's going to come back and get us is contingent. You know, I'm going to come back and get you if I can. I really should have taken this scripture and put it up on the screen. Uh, uh, but the passage in, in uh, James, where James says, you know, you... You, you got men amongst you who say, you know, I'm going to live and tomorrow I'm going to go and do business and I'm going to make a profit and this and that. And we make all these great plans for what we're going to do tomorrow. He said, but really what you're doing when you do that is you're assuming, you're presuming, and you shouldn't be doing that. You should be saying, if the Lord wills, then I'm going to go do that. If Jesus is not all-powerful, if God is, is not all-powerful, then Jesus saying, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself, is really Jesus saying, I'm going to come and do that if I'm able which insinuates that there may be something out there that could stop him. Which means the hope that we would have in Christ 
would be a lot less than the hope that we have in Christ now. But because God is in control, because God is omnipotent, because there's not a single force in the universe that can stop him, that means there's not a single force in the universe that can stop him from coming to get us to be with him. That there's not a single force in the universe that he cannot overcome in order to deliver us from it. There's not a single enemy in the universe that has harmed the bride of Christ that is going to get away with it because he can outmuscle Jesus on the day of judgment. It's not going to happen. That God's omnipotence, God's control is comforting for us because he cannot and will not abandon us. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. This is one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or really just anything else? That's what Paul's getting on here. As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Paul saying exactly what I'm trying to get across, that there is nothing in the universe that can separate you from the love of God that is available to you in Christ Jesus. If you will but come to Jesus and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let me tell you something. Every single day, and I'm going to have to try really hard not to get on a, on a soapbox right now. Um, but I'm just, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I'm going to go ahead and say it. Share a clip of this if you want to. Think I'm crazy, think I'm not, think I'm sensible. Um, but at some point at the beginning of this coronavirus mess, we started talking about flattening the curve. Remember this? Right, we started talking about flatten the curve. You see all the bell curves uh, on television, and they tell you we need to flatten the curve. We need to keep the infection right now. What was the point of that? The point of that, the point of flattening the curve, was to keep the healthcare system from being overloaded. That we had so many beds in the hospitals, we had so many ventilators, and if we have the huge crowd of coronavirus patients coming to the hospital, we're not going to have enough beds, we're not going to have enough ventilators, and people are going to die from lack of availability for care. Um, that, that was the point of flattening the curve. But at some point over the last several weeks, our wires have gotten crossed and flatten the curve has changed from meaning keep the healthcare system from being overwhelmed to stay inside until there's no risk whatsoever. Um, forgive me for being the bearer of bad news, but if you stay inside until there's no risk what, whatsoever, you're going to stay inside for the rest of your life. That coronavirus is probably not going to go away. And then, forgive me for being a pessimist, but you know what? When coronavirus is gone, there's still a thousand other things outside that door that could kill you. Um, that you could never get touched by coronavirus, but you could be hit by a car when you go out to go to the grocery store next week. A plane could fall out of the sky. A satellite could fall out of the sky onto your house. There are thousands of them up there. Uh, you, could, you could catch pneumonia. You could get the flu. You could get any other number of diseases. There are tons of things out there that could just wipe us out. What we as Christians have a responsibility to do in the face of the myriad ways we could be ended by this crazy fallen world is to look that world in the eye and say, you know what, my God's bigger than you. That, that coronavirus cannot separate me from the love of God, which is mine in Christ Jesus. A satellite falling out of the sky is not big enough that it can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That a, a, a criminal 
that could or would harm me is not big enough that he can separate me from the love of God that is mine in Christ Jesus. A family that doesn't want to talk to me is not big enough that they can separate me from the love of God that is mine in Christ Jesus. There are any number of things that can harm you on earth, but there is nothing that can harm you eternally if you belong to God in Christ Jesus. That there is nothing in all creation that can separate you from that. So let me ask you this. If all you've got is the security that this world has to offer, and you don't have the security that God has offered you in Jesus Christ, there are plenty of things that could separate you, not just from your life, but from God and eternal life forevermore. There are plenty of things that could do that. Any number of things could end you for all time. But for those of you who know Jesus Christ, there is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because God is all-powerful, we know for certain that he will not and cannot abandon us. So God being in control is good because he won't abandon us. Finally, I want us to see that God being in control is good because he can make us good. Uh, now, I can't take credit for this next part that I'm about to read because I have several commentaries that I study when I put sermons together. And... <clears throat> uh, I want to point out, uh, oh, excuse me, I messed up. Let's look at this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out my physical Bible because I didn't change the slide uh, when I was supposed to. So uh, Revelation chapter 19, look at verse 8. You should have this open in your Bible anyway, so if you're not relying on my slides, right? Like that's, that, that's a true statement. So Revelation 19 verse 8 says, And to her it was granted to be arrayed. That's key. It was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen, uh, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous act, at, or righteous acts of the saints. Uh, so what I need to uh, read next, uh, this is actually from the New American Commentary. Uh, uh, well, excuse me, no it's not. It's from the New International Commentary on the New Testament, and this is Dr. Robert Mounts. He's a renowned Greek scholar. Um, and he says, note that what was given to her was not the fine linen, as the NIV suggests, but the privilege of arraying herself in righteous acts. The New Revised Standard uh, Version translates, to her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen. Let me see if I have that on the slide. No, I don't. I wanted to put that up in front of you, but I didn't put that there. So uh, what Dr. Mounts is actually pointing out is that Scripture does not say, now if you've got an NIV, you're going to say, now wait a minute, uh, my Bible does say that she was granted fine linen to wear. Uh, yes, your NIV does say that, and your NIV got it wrong. Uh, there, that was an interpretational decision made by the translators, and a lot of times they get it right, but that's a miss. Um, that it wasn't the fine linen that was granted to her. It was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen. That she was able, the church is able to be arrayed in fine linen because that is granted to her. And then we're told what the fine linen is, which is the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So you can't even be arrayed before God in your own righteous acts if it is not granted to you to do so. So, well, wait a minute. Isn't that unfair? You know, so can't those who aren't saints do righteous acts? Why don't they get to wear fine linen and be part of the bride of Christ if the fine linen, if the wedding garments are just their righteous acts? Can't someone who isn't one of this in crowd do righteous acts and be clothed in that fine linen the same as those who come to Jesus? 
if the wedding garments are just righteous acts, can't anybody be righteous? Well, this comes from a misunderstanding of what holiness and righteousness are, which is why I threw up on the screen this verse from Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus 11, starting in verse 32, says, Anything on which any of them falls. So this comes in a passage. Uh, if, if you read anything about the Old Testament law, the Old Testament law covers every single part of life, every little thing. And this is talking about whether or not uh, pots and pans in your kitchen are ritually clean, not like clean enough to cook lasagna in uh, or, or spaghetti sauce in, but clean enough ritually that you're, you're not, this, there's not impurity before God here. So there was this whole ritual purification thing that they had to do, and there are ways that things could be ritually unclean. And so these are rules um, talking about unclean creatures. Uh, let me make sure I haven't skipped any verses. I haven't. Unclean creatures like something like a gecko, a gecko is unclean, according to the law. And let's say you've got a little gecko crawling on the roof of your house, and he croaks while he's climbing along the ceiling, and, goes, and then he falls, and he falls into a jar of water. Well, guess what? He's an unclean creature, and he's a dead unclean creature, so not anything he touches is unclean. So let's imagine this water pot. Gecko falls. Anything on which any of them falls, when they are dead, shall be unclean. Whether it's any item of wood or clothing or skin or sack, whatever item it is in which any work is done, it must be put in water and it shall be unclean until evening. Then it shall be clean. Any earthen vessel into which any of them falls, you shall break. And whatever is in it shall be unclean. In such a vessel, any edible food upon which water falls becomes unclean. And any drink that may be drunk from it becomes unclean. That lets you know, and I, I'm going to go ahead and put this up on the screen so you can see where I'm coming from. <clears throat> This sets us up to understand it's not like just anybody off the street can do righteous acts and then walk in front of God and be like, behold, all of my righteous deeds grant me my wedding garments. I am ready for the party. That's not the way this works because if the vessel is unclean, anything that comes in contact with that vessel is also unclean. So if you are an unclean person, you've never been purified by the blood of Christ, guess what? Even your righteous acts are filthy because the vessel is filthy. And Josh, did you just call me filthy? Sure I did. Yeah, I called you filthy. Uh, I've been filthy. Um, all of us have been filthy because we're all fallen human beings. The only thing that purifies us so that we can even perform righteous acts that are acceptable before God is the fact that Jesus's righteousness has already been offered on our behalf when he died on the cross. He's purified me as a vessel, so now I can bring righteous acts before God in gratefulness for what Jesus has done. I'm not saved by those righteous acts. Because remember, before Jesus purified me, none of my righteous acts actually came out as righteous because they were coming from an unclean vessel. They were coming from somebody who was dirty. And if you take, uh, uh, imagine your, your kitchen right now, if you've, if you've ever gone a couple days without washing dishes, Okay, imagine that you cook something in that pot that, you know, is, is a little nasty. It's been sitting in the sink for a couple days, kind of kind of smelling a little funky. Um, like, maybe the dog's not even curious about it anymore. It's a little nasty. Um, imagine that you grab that pot and you filled it up with the absolute best ingredients you possibly could, whatever your favorite dish is, and you filled it up with the absolute best ingredients and you cooked it absolutely perfectly and then you poured it out on the table in, in, in your, your best serving ware. 
your family that watched you cook that, despite the fact that you put the absolute best stuff into it that you could, you worked hard, you didn't mess up a single rule as you were putting it into that nasty, filthy, disgusting, unwashed, unclean pot. It doesn't matter the amount of effort that you took and the quality of ingredients you put in and the time you slaved away. Because you prepared it in an unclean vessel, it is totally unacceptable to anybody who would want it. Because the vessel was impure. That's all of us without Jesus. That we were impure vessels such that even our righteousness is filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6 says, but we're all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So our righteousness is actually impossible to get. So what happens if we need wedding garments? We've got to be purified. We've got to be clean vessels so that our righteousness that we strive, not we don't strive in our righteousness in order to be saved. Our righteous acts are flow out of our thankfulness that Jesus has already saved us. But where where are we going to get the ability? How do how do you get that to do righteous acts? Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is crucial. Do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Listen to me, church. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is righteousness and there is unrighteousness and the two are not to be conflated. That unrighteous people will not inherit the kingdom of God. So how does one become righteous instead of unrighteous? Read on. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. Laundry list. This is not exhaustive, but you get the idea. There are plenty of things that can make a person unrighteous. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified, set apart. You were justified, forgiven. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That what God does for you is God takes you. That dirty, nasty, filthy pot that's so disgusting that the flies fly away from it. He takes you. He cleans you up. He purifies you so that now all the good stuff can go into it and all the good stuff can come out of it. That all of us who were filthy, who were disgusting, who were dirty, rotten, unrighteous sinners, Jesus comes in and says, you know what, I'm going to scrub you clean. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to make you useful so that your righteousness, now it's not filthy rags, but it's clean, white linen that you didn't even have the ability to have before, much less wear. That this is an ability that, that Christ gives to his church, that he always intended to give to his church, to actually walk in righteousness because of what he's done for us. And then finally, this, this last verse, Ephesians 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Jesus did not save you for you to sit soaking sour. 
He saved you to go out and be his hands and feet. When he saved you, he had tasks for you. He had a job for you. He had dreams for you. He's got a mission for you. And you are not even fit to go out on that mission until you come to Christ and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because if you try and step out there and put your absolute best effort in, but you do it as a filthy vessel, then you will put out filthy rags. That's what your righteousness will be. But you come to Jesus and let him purify you and clean you. God being in control is good because he can make us good. That's not a power you have, no matter how hard you try. God can make you good because of what his son Jesus has done. So I hope this has been encouraging for you this morning, seeing why it's good that God is, God being in control is good. Um, I want to make a couple of announcements after I pray, and then we'll be done for this morning. So I hope you enjoyed your music and your, your worship this morning, or your music and your sermon this morning. Uh, shoot me a comment or an email. Let me know, uh, do you think this is better? Do you think this is worse, having it all as one video uh, than having it as separate videos? But uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll make some announcements, and we'll be done. Father, uh, thank you so much for today. Um, thank you for the opportunity to study uh, your word together as a church family. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here today who wants God to make them good, who wants, to who wants God to justify them, to forgive them, to give them that guarantee that there's nothing in all of creation uh, that can separate them from, from the love you have for them in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would work in their heart in the Holy Spirit to draw them to cry out to you and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and confess that they, that they need your righteousness offered on their behalf through your Son on the cross, that they would confess that they believe not only that Jesus died for them, but he also rose for them in power and victory over death and that they believe he will come again one day to receive his bride and they will offer themselves um, to him in, in, in service for all eternity and love and allegiance for all eternity and lord i know that you will save them right there um, so lord pray that you bless them that you bless and grow stapleton baptist church in jesus name amen all right a couple of announcements i went a little bit over time big surprise um so let's look at these announcements before we leave. Uh, if you're watching this on our church website and you're a Facebook user, I want you to check out facebook.com backslash Stapleton Baptist GA. That's the best place for breaking news as it happens. And you also get fun little features like 60-second devotionals that I have just added this week that is going to be exclusive uh, to Facebook where I take a Bible verse uh, and give the call to take 60 seconds out of your day, stop everything that you're doing, and focus just on that verse, and then post one thought that you had so that we can all think about God's Word together. Uh, it's a hectic world, even in lockdown, uh, so this gives you an opportunity to tune everything else out except for God's Word and for us to all kind of do that uh, together. Uh, if you are watching this on Facebook, but you've never been to our church website, I want you to check out stapletonbaptist.org. That's where you can find all the backlog of our sermons. You can find all of our handouts, like handouts that go along with this sermon. You can, most importantly, join our email list. There's a big rotator on the front that uh, will have a link in it that instructs you on how you can join our email list. That's got very important information and is an official organ of communication for our church, or at least will be uh, in a few weeks. Um, so go join that, that email list. Uh, and also, uh, it will have all of the latest information on our reopening, which right now is scheduled for June 14th. So go ahead and check out stapletonbaptist.org uh, if you've not done that. Uh, <clears throat> honestly, I think that's all of my announcements right now. I still can't figure out uh, where to put my eyes. So I hope that hasn't been off-putting for you this morning. I love you guys. Um, I am glad to be back with you again this Sunday, but I seriously cannot wait. Uh, to see you all again in person in these pews that don't have your name on them, but in my mind, they kind of do. I, I, I see shades of people uh, sitting here while I'm preaching that I wish were real people. Uh, so uh, I love you guys. Y'all take care. Y'all be safe. Reach out if you need something. 
Jesus loves you. We love you. Can't wait to have you back.